25. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down from you, from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thank you very much, Paul. And good morning, everybody. My name is Danny, and uh, if we haven't met, hope to have that opportunity later on. Uh, It'd be great to have that passage that Paul just read uh, open in front of you. And I'll begin with a a quiz question, uh, literature round. Uh, Which book is this? It's neither a fantasy, fairy tale, nor feisty romance, but has sold more copies than Harry Potter, the Brontes, and Peter Rabbit put together. It's been at the top of the bestseller list for over 300 years. It has never been out of print. It is, in fact, the best-selling book in history, second only to the Bible. It was even named by the Guardian newspaper as the greatest work of fiction of all time. I am, of course, talking about John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And if you've never read it, or perhaps never even heard of it, then why not put it on your Christmas list right away? But here's the question. Why has an allegory of the Christian life written by an obscure Baptist pastor in 1678 resonated so deeply with so many people? Well, let me give you the full title of the book, which may be a clue. The Pilgrim's Progress from this world to that which is to come. And I think that tells us why it has resonated with so many, because the idea of being on a journey from one world to the next is so powerful. And it just happens to be so thoroughly biblical. To be a Christian is to be a pilgrim to pass through this world on our way to the next. And we're learning that the letter of 1 Peter is written for pilgrims, or as he calls them, exiles, aliens, strangers. For those who know they do not belong to this world and for whom life is now a journey towards their true home. But who are these pilgrims, and why do they feel this way about life? Well, in verses 1 to 12, Peter has explained that it's because something momentous has happened to them, which has changed their relationship to God and to the world. Last week, in verses 10 to 12, we saw that they have heard and believe the message of God in the Bible. They have heard the good news of Jesus Christ, They've heard that all the promises of the Old Testament have come true in him, and they have believed that word. Well, as Dan said before, believing an ancient message in a book doesn't sound very momentous. But glance across the page to verse 3, and you'll see that Peter describes that same reality 
as nothing less than a new birth. Verse 3, those who believe this message have been reborn into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what that means is that their citizenship has changed forever. These people no longer only live in those cities mentioned in verse 1 in Asia Minor. They belong to another city, the city of God. They no longer only live in this world, but they belong to the future world of Jesus Christ. Like the people of Israel in Babylon, they are exiles looking forward to going home. Which prompts me to ask the question, are you among them? If you have believed the same message, then Peter would say, well, you too are a pilgrim. You are an alien in this world. If you've come to believe that Jesus is the king of the universe, if you're convinced that he died for your sins, that he is going to return to rule this world forever, then you no longer live for this world. You belong to him. Life now is a journey to your true home. And it might be the case that there are some here this morning who are actually weighing up that decision right now. And it's right to weigh it up because you cannot have both this world and Jesus. Of course, you're going to lose this world anyway, but there is a cost to being a pilgrim. And it might also be the case that some of us who are convinced followers of Jesus are feeling weary by the, the journey because it is hard, as we'll see as the letter progresses. Or perhaps because actually this world has its attractions that are beckoning us to settle down and make it our home. And if that's you, then you also have a decision to make. Which is your true home? You can't straddle two worlds it's miserable for a star being pulled in two different directions, and it's dangerous. And probably others of us are simply plodding along, putting one foot in front of another. And we might occasionally wonder, how am I going to make it to the end? How will I keep going on this journey to the very end? Well, whichever of those categories you find yourselves in this morning, we all need to hear the encouragement of this passage in 1 Peter. Because here, Peter is going to teach us how to be in exile and never give up. And you'll see on the sheet that he gives us three things to do. Each of these are major themes of the letter that he is opening up now and we'll come back to in due course. He says, if you want to be in exile, here are the three things you've got to do. First of all, You've got to face your glorious destiny. That is, the first thing Peter wants us to do is change the way we think about the future. Look with me how he puts it in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That all sounds good, doesn't it? But what does it all mean? Well, let's work backwards through that sentence and take the last word first. The word translated revealed is the well-known Greek word apocalypse. So he's saying set your hope on the apocalypse of Jesus. But that word is one of those words that has been muddied and confused over time with misuse. Usually, particularly in the sort of the Hollywood world, it means a kind of a cataclysmic end of the world moment where Jesus, who is now absent, returns to his world and sorts things out. That's the kind of usual meaning of the word apocalypse. But the word in the Bible doesn't quite mean that. It doesn't mean the coming of somebody who is absent, but it's the unveiling of somebody who is present. 
which is why the translation in front of us is just right, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've already seen a hint of this in verse 8, haven't we? Just look back at verse 8, where Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That is a way of describing the Christian life. The Christian life that Joe and Dan were talking about, where we have this expectation of seeing Jesus in the future, but we don't have it now. And so the future Peter wants them to think about is not the coming back of an absent Jesus, like Christopher's spaceman returning from his travels, if you're old enough or perhaps cheesy enough to remember that Christmas song, No, the apocalypse of Jesus is the unveiling of a Jesus who is already here, who is reigning and ruling, but now invisible. Now, what difference does that make? Why be concerned about that? Well, it clarifies what Peter means by the word hope. See, the word hope is another word in the Bible that has been muddied and muddled over time. Just think about the way you've heard the word hope used during the course of this week. It's a kind of a a nice but a soft and squishy word, isn't it? It is really just a, a wish for the future that may or may not come about. I hope the sun will shine tomorrow. I hope I'll get that job. I hope the war in the Middle East will end. None of those things have any solid guarantee They're just wishes, aren't they? That kind of hope, actually, is about as useful as a teacher of mine used to say, as useful as a chocolate teapot. I think that teacher was referring to us when he used that expression as year nine boys. You guys are as useful as a chocolate teapot. It's a kind of a nice insult because a chocolate teapot is a nice thing to have, but you wouldn't want to trust it with anything important, like making tea, for example. And that is how people think about hope. It's it's lovely that you Christians have this hope of going to heaven when you die, but I wouldn't want to trust it with anything particularly important. But hope in the Bible is very different. Because hope in the Bible actually is not a wish, it is an expectation that rests on something that has actually happened already, something Jesus has already achieved. So hope for the Christian is not wishful thinking. It's an anticipation of a future reality. It's not a positive outlook. It is trusting God with the future. It's not optimism. It's rationalism. And this, I'm sure you will have noticed is why the section begins with the word therefore because in verses 3 to 12 Peter has explained the basis of this hope in what Jesus has already done his victory over sin his resurrection in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises that is what Jesus has done already so our hope in the future is solid it's already achieved What has he done? Well, look again at verses 3 and 4. He has bashed through that wall of death by his resurrection. He has dealt with sin and evil, and he is now reigning and ruling. Verse 4, guarding the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Therefore, verse 13, set your hope on that future because it is absolutely solid and certain. Okay, well, there's the first word of verse 13 dealt with, the apocalypse of Jesus. We don't see him, but we love him, and we're dead excited for the day when he will be revealed. But what difference does that make now? Is it a bit like a life insurance policy, filed away, in a dusty filing cabinet, might come in handy sometime, but it's not going to fundamentally change my attitude to risk. When I cross the road, 
I'm not thinking, well, it's okay, I've got a life insurance policy, I'll just blindly cross the road. It's not actually making a difference to the way I live. So what difference does having this hope actually make? Well, look again at what Peter says in verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. And here is the key. Set your hope fully on it. What does all that mean? Well, prepare your minds for action is literally gird up the loins of your minds. Now, you may have an old translation of the Bible that says exactly that, but you can see why modern translators don't do that, because modern dress means we don't do a lot of girding up of loins. But if we still went around in long robes, we would sometimes find a need to tuck those robes into a belt or to kind of get them sort of sorted in between our legs, finding it difficult to explain, really. But if you wear a long cloak or robe and you're going to start doing some jobs in the garden or going for a run, you've got to gird up your loins. You get the idea? It's also a phrase that takes us back to the time of Israel in Egypt. As they were beginning their journey to the promised land, they had to gird up their loins. Just before they left on the night of Passover, they were told to tuck their cloak into their belt, to put their sandals on their feet, to have their staff in their hand. And so can you see what Peter is saying? Prepare your minds for action. Gird up your loins of your mind for the future that lies ahead. Face your destiny. Set your hope on it. And the second phrase, self-control, literally to be sober-minded. It is about keeping our minds clear instead of being dulled and anaesthetized by the attractions of this world. See, why is drink driving bad? Well, it's because you lose focus and you end up driving off the road. And in the same way, he wants us to be sober-minded as pilgrims, awake for the journey that lies ahead. In other words, what Peter is saying to us in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed for you, is that this future, your destiny, is to determine the rest of your life, is to determine the shape and direction of your life, orient your life to that future. If Peter were writing now, he might not say, gird up your loins. He might say, set your sat-nav towards Jesus and go for it. Well, it might help to illustrate this with a simple diagram, which many of us know from our startup membership course. The future to which the universe is heading is the apocalypse of Jesus. This is the last day. This is what is going to end it all. The thing we cannot see now, we will see then. And it will be amazing to see Jesus revealed in all his glory. The universe is heading in that direction. But tragically, many people live in denial of that reality. So the little arrows are, are people living with their backs to the future, denying the lordship of Jesus. They're unbelievers. They are putting their hope in the dead hopes of the world. And this is how we all lived. But God, through the gospel, has revealed his plan for the world. He's woken us up to reality to become a christian is actually to turn 180 degrees around and face the future with hope and so if you're a christian this morning you are facing reality and all peter is saying here is do that orientate your life fully to the hope that you have in christ well, what does that mean in practice? Let me offer a couple of suggestions. As I said, Peter is going to expand all of these 
principles later in the letter, so this is just a taster, but let me offer a couple of suggestions what this means in practice. First, if you are undecided about Jesus, or perhaps denying his reality, here is a strong encouragement to turn your life around. Because clearly you can't live forever with your back to the future. Because the apocalypse of Jesus is coming. And everything you are trusting in now in this world will perish, to use one of Peter's favorite phrases. Whether it is gold that you're trusting in, or pleasure, or status, or bodily health, all of these things will perish on the last day. And you need to hear the good news of the word of God right now and turn and be forgiven and be born anew into this living hope. To say, yes, my future is not of this world, but it's with Jesus. That's all a Christian is. Somebody who has heard the gospel and accepted it and turned their life around to face the reality of the future. And if that's you, can I warmly encourage you to make that turn today? What is stopping you from walking out of this building this morning with your life changed and you've become a pilgrim, an exile in the world? That's the first implication. Secondly, Peter clearly doesn't think any of this hope malarkey comes naturally to us. That's why he has to spell it out. He has to tell us to gird up our minds. He has to tell us to fix our hope on it to get it into our heads. Clearly, he has to remind us to do this because of the nature of hope, that we can't see the reality. And this is one of the things we're doing every time we meet together to hear the word of God. This is one of the things we do as we gather together as a church. We're, we're helping each other to keep seeing it. In fact, the only time the New Testament comes close to commanding people to go to church is Hebrews 10.25, which says the very reason you go to church and don't give up going to church is to encourage each other as you see the day approaching. It's those little arrows in the diagram saying to the other arrows in the diagram, keep going. You're facing the right way. Let's do this. Let's make it to the end. Which is why when people drift away from church or stop coming or turn off, the rest of us start to worry because we can see what's happening. We can start worrying, are you going to make it or are you going to give up and go back to the world? Well, third implication is if you have set your hope on Jesus, it will cost you. It will cost you everything. It will cost you this world you'll find you cannot have both. Yes, of course, just like the people of Israel in Babylon, there is a need to build houses and settle down and work hard and get married and raise families and all those things. But there is a way of doing those things as a resident of this world, and there is a way of doing those things as a resident of the world to come. And the difference is the priority. What are you going to be prepared to sacrifice of this world to make it to the next? Or to put it another way, if someone were to look at your life, if the Apostle Peter were to come back and, and look at your life and your decisions, how you spend your time, your money, your energy, what your hopes and dreams are, would he see evidence that you are a pilgrim? that this world is not your home, would he see that? So let me put it this way. Can you picture two people traveling on the same train? One is a middle-aged commuter. He's heading off on his daily work in the city, a job he has done for years and years, too many times to remember. And here is the daily grind of his commute again. And he's on the train, and the window, 
is flashing past him and his head is resting on the window, the newspaper's fallen into his lap, his head is drowsily lolling as a train hurtles towards its destination. He's on the train, but you wouldn't say he's set his hope on getting to the end of the journey. But on the other side of the carriage is a little child, excited about a family day out in the city to celebrate a birthday. Face pressed up against the window, taking everything in, anticipating the arrival. Are we there yet? Are we nearly there? How much longer? And which of those two would describe your life? Your attitude to the future? Have you become just a little bit accustomed to the privilege that we have as exiles? Has it become the life insurance policy just filed away in the background? Or is this hope really what you get out of bed for? Every morning you set your sat-nav to heaven and you go for it. Face your glorious destiny. That's the first thing that exiles must do. But there's a second thing we must do. We must embrace our true identity. And this is in 14 to 21. Now, identity, of course, is a modern buzzword. You be you. Nicely sums up our culture's commitment to personal autonomy. I get to choose who I am. I get to decide my identity based on my inner preferences. And if that means something as, as extraordinary and radical as deciding that I am a woman trapped in a man's body, then that is my prerogative to decide. You be you. You find yourself and you express yourself. That's the modern way of looking at it, isn't it? But have a look at verse 14 and 15. As obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. To, undergo, to become a Christian is to undergo an extraordinary change of life. From the dead hopes of the world to the living hope of God's future. But now we see that that change operates at the deepest possible level. As well as changing your destiny, it changes your identity. It changes what it means for you to be you. The clue to this is in that word children, in verse 14. Children do not choose their identity. They do not choose to be born. They do not choose to look like their parents. And we've already seen that to be a Christian is to be born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to the dead, to be adopted into God's family. And so God has chosen us and given birth to us into a new family through the gospel. We now have God as our father. We are children of God. And so our identity is to live as children of God. And what does that mean? Well, it's caught up in that little word, holy, in verse 15 16. Well, here is our third Bible word that probably has lost its sharpness over time. We know that holiness is a good thing, but what does it mean? Well, the basic idea is very simple to grasp. To be holy is to be set apart for a specific purpose. To be holy is to be set apart for God's specific purpose. Now, let me give you an illustration. Uh, some of you know that my wife, Emma, has very high standards of cleanliness and order around the house. And one of the ways this manifests itself is that she, she owns a number of dustpan and brushes. 
Now, I, I always thought before I married her that you know, one dustpan and brush would do, but no, you've got to have several. And she has very helpfully identified these very, very clearly with thick black marker pen so that the other residents of the house will know what they can and cannot be used for. And when I say other residents of the house, I mean me. <laughs> now, one of these dustpan and brushes is the one that I get to use for my typical household jobs, such as cleaning soot from the fire or scooping dead rats and half-eaten blackbirds off the patio. We get a lot of those from our neighbor's cats. And this dustpan and brush has a very clear label on it in black marker, the word horrid. <laughs> That's my dustpan and brush. The other dustpan and brush is set apart for the things that Emma does, like gently sweeping the stairs carpet or getting fine flecks of dust off the floor tiles. And this one is very clearly labelled nice. <laughs> and woe betide anyone who uses the nice dustpan and brush <clears throat> for scooping up dead rats from the patio. It is holy. It is set apart for a specific purpose and person. So you get the idea? Holiness is to be set apart for a specific purpose. So to be holy in the Bible is to be to God what that nice dustpan and brush is to Emma. To be reserved for his exclusive purpose in a way that fits with his character. Now, actually, this is a huge thing because much of the Old Testament story is teaching us what holiness looks like. It is hardwired into the Old Testament story. Uh, take, for example, the building of the tabernacle and the temple. Go to the book of Exodus, for example, and you'll see all sorts of things, objects, I didn't see any dustpan and brushes, but utensils, rooms, furniture, curtains, altars, clothing, priests, oil, sacrifices, all of these objects are called holy. How can an object be holy? Because they're set apart for God's exclusive use. It's also there in the details of the law. Have you ever wondered why the Jewish people were forbidden from eating certain things. And there's surely nothing morally wrong with eating a shellfish, but they were not to eat those things in the way they conducted their calendar, their religious festivals, the way they could and couldn't work on the Sabbath, how to treat skin diseases and bodily discharges and all sorts of personal intrusive things like that, and most intrusive and personal was the circumcision of Jewish males. All of these are God's way of putting a black marker pen on every one of his people to say, holy, reserved for me, you belong to me for exclusive use. And so in the light of that, look again at verses 14 to 15. As obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, if God did that for the people of Israel through external ceremonial, religious, and even bodily signs, if that is how God put his black marker on them and said, you are mine, how does he do it for the Christian? Well, the answer comes in verses 17 to 21. Now, these verses are, are dense and complex. There's a lot in them, and we could spend a lot of time on them. But it's helpful to know that 17 to 21 are a kind of a sandwich in which the result is on the outside and the means is on the inside. Just look at them with me and you'll see what I mean. Result on the outside, that's verse 17 and 21, and the means on the inside. 
So look at the outside of the sandwich. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And then verse 21, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. In other words, for the Christian, holiness does not involve any of those outward signs of the Old Testament people of God. But the difference will be seen in your character, in your desire, in your attitudes. It means, for example, living in this world with the, the confidence and awe one has when one knows one's father is also the judge of the world. It means becoming more who you are. Not going back to the world's ways and those desires you had before, but becoming more and more like God, the person you've been made to be. See, the world tells us that if I find within myself a desire, whether it's a sexual desire or a desire to be or achieve something in the world, then that desire must be expressed and fulfilled because it is who I am. This is what the world is telling us. And it's telling us loudly and clearly, with sexual identity particularly. But God is saying, no, that is not who you are. Who you are is to be like God, to be conformed to his likeness. And so the question then comes, well, what kind of power is available to us that can bring about that change? What kind of power can overcome those intense desires that I find battling within me? Well, now look at the center of the sandwich. This is how God does it. Verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. What is the power that can change a person from the inside out? Nothing less than the most precious commodity the universe has to offer. The very blood of the Son of God. Now Peter, as usual, has Old Testament ideas in mind here. He's thinking in particular of the unblemished lamb that the Israelite had to kill to put their blood on the door frames at the time of the exodus from Egypt to show the angel of death that they were trusting in God for their rescue. And he's saying a Christian is someone who has trusted in the death of Jesus for their rescue from sin. The enormous price God has paid for holiness. And Peter's point is very simple. If that is what it costs Jesus to make you holy, if the marker pen written on you is written in the blood of Jesus, then you'll want to be holy, won't you? If this is what it took to give you your new identity as a child of God, and a future that is totally secure, that nothing can take away, then won't you want to embrace that identity, no matter how hard it might be and how painful the struggle? If God himself has given up his son to make you holy, then wouldn't you want to be holy and not go back to your empty way of life if that's what it cost? Now, again, a couple of implications, and Peter will develop this much more in the letter, but just a couple of implications for now. Firstly, if you're going to be holy, you're going to be different. If you're going to be holy, you're going to be different. This was, in fact, one of the big purposes of all those laws in the Old Testament. Just have a look at Leviticus 20, 23 on the screen. 
You must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. And as the letter progresses, Peter will apply this very practically to the way we work and relate to those in authority, to the way we conduct marriage and so on. It will say, it'll mean saying no to what the world says yes to, saying no to sexual permissiveness, to materialism and greed, having different practices at work and so on. Being holy means being committed to what God is committed to. Not just in behavior, but in thinking. It will set you on a different path. Now, on the one hand, this is going to be part of our witness to the world, as Peter will also develop. Some people are going to see this and are going to be drawn to Christ because of the difference. But others will find themselves repelled. And therefore, the second implication if you're going to be holy, you're going to be different. Second implication, if you're going to be different, you're going to be opposed. To be holy in an unholy world is going to be painful. Now, I want to recommend this book um, called Pride, Identity, and the Worship of Self. It's a book that the staff team have been reading, and a number of people in our church have really enjoyed it over the summer. And I just want to quote uh, one uh, part of this book right now. He's talking about the sexual permissiveness of our culture. He says, 60s-style permissiveness has been left behind. Rather, things the Bible calls evil are seen positively as good, and doing and celebrating them a moral form of heroism. And that which the Bible calls good positively evil. To believe in marriage is wicked. To flaunt sexual perversion is virtuous. To encourage sexual restraint is abusive. To urge sexual experimentation is decent and right and good. To kill unborn children is right. To suggest their lives should be protected is morally appalling. My generation of Christians grew up with the expectation that some people would find our views dated. Now we dare not mention them in public for fear of losing our jobs. See, if you're going to believe this stuff, if you're going to align yourself with what God thinks, if you're going to be holy in your thinking about what it means to be human, then you're going to suffer the alienation of our culture. You're going to be more and more foreign to a culture that disbelieves these things. And therefore, if you're going to be holy, you're going to be different. If you're going to be different, some people will be attracted, as we'll see. But you'll draw the hostility of the world, the very thing that Peter, Peter's readers are experiencing. And that is why we need to come now to verses 22 to 25. To live as an alien, we must face our glorious destiny. We must embrace our new identity. But there's one more thing Peter says we must do. An alien in the world must love your spiritual family. So have a look at verse 22 with me. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Now, before we uh, look at these verses, I want you to look up, and I want you to look around, if you would, at the people sitting near you. Uh, have a really good look around, make eye contact, have a stretch. If you're sitting with your family, then you need to make eye contact with someone who you're not actually related to. There are churches I know where this would be difficult, but I think this would be okay. <laughs> Have you had a good look? Clock somebody? Okay, well, let me tell you the bad news. This is your new spiritual family. <laughs> These are the guys you're going to spend eternity with. As the saying goes, you can choose your friends, but not your family. I'm sorry. 
And maybe this is why Peter has to say this so emphatically. And by the way, whenever Peter says brothers, he means brothers and sisters all the way through the letter. But he says love deeply, which means at full stretch. He's not really talking about a kind of emotional feeling. He's saying love, love at full stretch from the heart, from the center of your being. And if you read through the letter, you'll see that this is a big theme of Peter, something I've learned this week. Verse 2, 17, love the brotherhood of believers. 3, 8, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then finally, 5, 14, in case we haven't got it, greet one another with a kiss of love. We won't go there just yet. We'll come to that in time. But why does Peter talk about loving one another here at this point? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. For one, it's incredibly encouraging, isn't it, to know that we are not aliens alone. See, why are there so many bubble tea restaurants in Lancaster? Is it because Chinese people like bubble tea? No. It's because Chinese people like hanging around with Chinese people. See, it's hard living in a strange culture. And so people like hanging around with people like them. Emma and I spent four years in Australia. We loved Australians. But we did find ourselves occasionally just needing a break. <laughs> and needing to talk to people who had the same accents as us and were on the same cricket team and all the rest of it. Not on the cricket team we're supporting. And the point is, you might be an alien here, but you're not an alien back there. And so you hang out with people who are like you, and it's encouraging. And in the same way, we Christians might be aliens in the world, but we won't be aliens in eternity. And so as exiles, we get the deep joy of being exiles together in church. Do you remember the cave of Adullam in 1 Samuel 22? That beautiful little picture of church where the outlawed King David drew together a bunch of misfits and weirdos and no-hopers and all these people who had one thing in common, that they put their hope in David and his coming kingdom. They were what you might call the out-crowd well, that's church. Welcome to it. Enjoy it. But there's another reason Peter puts that here, and I think he does it as a test. See, obviously, I was being tongue-in-cheek before about each other and all that kind of stuff. We're all very lovable, aren't we? But actually, when you get to know us, we're not so lovable. And the more you get to know us, the less lovable we become. Because we are, in fact, still sinners. We have this new identity as God's children, but while we live in this world, we're still learning to live out that identity. And so we are still going to hurt each other, we are still sometimes going to be incredibly difficult to love. And therefore, to love your brothers and sisters at full stretch is one of the best pieces of evidence there can be that you are, in fact, an alien. That God has worked that great miraculous change in you. That's why church, again, is so important. Because it's as you love people that you would never choose as your friends that you realize actually, you know, God has done something really quite momentous in you through his word. You are a pilgrim on your way to the promised land. Well, let's conclude by going back to what I said at the beginning, that there will be people weighing this decision up, wondering whether the price is too high. Others feeling weary of the journey because it's hard. Some being tempted to settle down 
and make this world home because actually it is quite good. And probably many of us just plodding on, putting one foot in front of the other. And these three things Peter wants us to take seriously if we're to make it to the end, to face our glorious destiny, to set our hope fully on the future, to look forward to that day when Jesus will be revealed, to orientate our life towards it. And he wants us to embrace our true identity, to recognize the, no matter how it feels now, the actual person God is making you to be, to be holy in his sight and to live that out and to love your new spiritual family, the people you get to be aliens together with. But there's one more thing which drives all of these and makes all of them possible. All of this is possible only because God has planted his word of the gospel in us. This is the engine room for change. This is the way we get to make it to the end. Verse 24, for all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. These words from Isaiah 40 come in the context of the announcement of the end of exile, of Babylon being open and God's people returning to his land. And Peter now says, if you hold on to this word, you will make it to the end. If you listen to this word, it'll drown out the voices calling you back. If you listen to this word and hold on to it, this is the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is coming, that he will be revealed, that he has done everything you need to get you to the end, and nothing in heaven or earth will outlast it. And so hold on to the word. Make it to the end. A pilgrim from this world to that which is to come. Let's pray that we'll do that now. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help. When we are enticed by the world's empty hopes to come back to the word of the gospel which promises us so much more. That word that brings us into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. Please help us to keep listening, to keep believing and to keep walking one day at a time towards that great hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.